that no one was watching you or, or you wish nobody had been watching you, but sometimes you do something and, and it, it, it seems inevitable or, or even that everyone is going to see the mistake that you made. Even, even people you don't know <laughs> will see or hopefully people, you know, you're not even going to, you won't, you'll never meet, Right? But some people are forever tied to the mistakes they've made. How many times have we seen it happen? Successful people who make unfortunate mistakes or make foolish decisions or glaring sins, and they spend the rest of their lives regretting that moment in their life. And in your eyes, does that include you? Today, we are looking at a failure which is undoubtedly one of the most painful failures written about in Scripture. And it happens in the three days before the cross. As a matter of fact, it happens actually within 24 hours of Jesus' crucifixion. And as you probably have already guessed, it involves the Apostle Peter. Never mind that Peter was the only man in history other than Jesus who walked on water. Never mind that Peter's the one who made the statement, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Forget that Peter was the one who preached the very first gospel message on the day of Pentecost where 3,000 people respond and give their lives to Jesus and are baptized into him, or that church tradition tells us that Peter died on a cross, but he died upside down because he did not consider uh, it worthy, himself worthy, to die as Jesus did. Especially as we get close to Easter, when we think of Peter, what we tend to think about is what he does the night before Jesus dies. Now, before we get too far, let me ask you this question. What single event in your life do you regret the most? In other words, the if I could go back and fix one thing, if I could go back and relive one moment, if I could change a single day in my life, which one would it be? Because my guess is that all of us have one of those. For Peter, it was the night that Jesus was betrayed and arrested. You know, most failures can be painful and wounding, and they leave scars on our hearts, sometimes on our bodies, when we fail, we feel defeated, we feel discouraged, we feel detached from other people. I don't know if you've ever noticed how much failure is actually recorded in the Bible. The Scripture is littered with the wreckage of men and women who have failed in one way or another. And you don't have to read uh, many of those stories to know that if you have failed in some way, you are actually in some pretty good company, including the company of Peter. Peter had a huge well-publicized failure. And it all began in the upper room. And we began looking uh, at this four weeks ago, right? Jesus met with his disciples on Thursday night to celebrate the Passover meal. And he took the bread and the juice, which already had symbolism wrapped up for the Jewish people, and he gives it new meaning, pointing us forward. And then he foretells his death. And then he promises them the Holy Spirit. And then he prayed fervently for believers throughout the centuries. And then he makes this prediction about his followers. This very night you will all fall away on account of me. For it's written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Can you imagine how they heard those words? For Peter, it was like a punch in the gut. I mean, he didn't care if the whole world fell away from Jesus. He had seen the miracles. He had heard the sermons, and he had no intention of falling away. As a matter of fact, Peter responded, even if everyone else falls away on account of you, not me, 
truly I tell you, Jesus said, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter said, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. As a matter of fact, all the other disciples said the same thing. What's interesting is it's so bold. Peter's statement is so bold. All four Gospels record that. I mean, you can't miss it. And it's certainly true with the appropriate confidence. There's no virtue in lack of confidence. That's not humility, by the way. That's insecurity. And 2 Timothy, Paul writes to Timothy, and he tells us that God doesn't give us a spirit of timidity. Uh, On the other hand, it's no virtue to be overconfident. Paul would write to the church in Corinth reminding us that that's actually arrogance. He says, if you think you're standing firm, be careful so that you do not fall. Peter may have been overconfident. He should have been more aware of his vulnerability. He was an inconsistent disciple at times, but he usually erred on the overside, not the underside. Isn't that preferable? If you look on your notes, if you're on the version app, following our notes, you'll see this, I'd rather restrain a fanatic than resurrect a corpse. Martin Luther said this, if you're going to sin, sin boldly. And while that's not you know, our church motto or anything, Jesus did say, I'd rather you be hot or cold. I mean, lukewarm would make me spit you out of my mouth. And I got to tell you, Peter was not lukewarm. I think that's why Jesus would choose him to lead the church. That's why there's uh, over 200 verses about him in the New Testament. He had a good heart. He had good intentions. Listen, Peter meant well. He actually wanted to stand by Jesus to the very end, and he was willing to say so. And so they leave the upper room, and they head toward the Garden of Gethsemane. We've talked about the garden the last couple of weeks. It was this secluded garden just outside of Jerusalem that Jesus had free use of for prayer and meditation. And while they were praying, Judas comes sneaking in, leading a band of soldiers, and he identified Jesus in the darkness with a kiss. We talked about that last week. If you missed it, I hope you'll go back and listen to that at our website. But Matthew 26, verses 50 and 51 tell us, then the men stepped forward and they seized Jesus and they arrested him. And with that, one of Jesus's companions reached for his sword, drew it out and struck the servant of the high priest, uh, cutting off his ear. John's gospel uh, tells us that Peter was the one who drew the sword. Now, Don't flash forward and chastise Peter for being foolish, impulsive, and violent. Put yourself in his sandals for just a moment. Keep in mind that just a few hours before, Jesus had given them some surprising counsel, actually. Jesus said, but now if you have a purse, take it, and also a bag. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. And the disciples said, see, Lord, here are two swords. And Jesus said, that's enough. Now, some people think that Jesus is urging the disciples to carry a sword to provide security, maybe for their families in the next upcoming days. Or maybe he's using it as a figure of speech, much like a coach does when he's talking to his team and he says, we're going to war. But Peter took it literally. And when the soldiers came into the garden, he drew the sword and he attacked. Now, I wonder why with all the soldiers around, he would attack the high priest's servant Maybe he was the closest, or maybe he was the mouthiest, or maybe he was the weakest in the area. Whatever the reason, Peter whacks off part of the guy's ear. Now, his action was overzealous and ineffective, 
But he was doing exactly what he told Jesus he would do. He had told Jesus just earlier, even if I have to die with you, I'll never deny you. He was making good on that promise. He was willing to die for Jesus. And again, with more zeal than forethought, he took his stand against the enemy. And you know, he probably would have been dead within seconds if Jesus hadn't immediately intervened. Jesus miraculously heals the servant's ear, and then this is what he says. He says, put away your sword. Those who use the sword will die by the sword. Don't you realize I could ask my father for thousands of angels to protect us, and he would send them instantly. But if I did, how would the scriptures be fulfilled that describe what must happen now? And while it's the first time that we have recorded that he failed that night, we all know it's not the last time. Jesus in the process is taken to the house of the high priest, and Matthew tells us in verse 58 that Peter followed at a distance right up to the courtyard of the high priest, and he entered and he sat down with the guards to see the outcome. He goes into the enemy's camp. He's willing to follow Jesus. He's willing to stay as close as possible, and if he can to change what seems to be this inevitable outcome, which, by the way, brings us to our first lesson when it comes to failure. Don't overestimate my ability to withstand temptation. When it comes to failure, I need to not overestimate my ability to withstand temptation. Peter is in the courtyard of the enemy. He's in the wrong place at the wrong time, and he could not handle the pressure. Verse 69 says this, Peter was sitting out in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him. You also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said, but he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. In verse 71, it says that then he went out to the gateway and another servant girl saw him and said to the people there, oh, this fellow was with Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, and he denied it again with an oath. I don't know the man. Verse 73, after a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, surely you're one of them. Your accent gives you away. And then he began to call down curses, and he swore to them, I don't know the man. Listen, please consider the context. Peter's world was crumbling around him. For three years, he'd followed Jesus of Nazareth. They've traveled together. They've suffered together. They've been rejected together. They had existed without home, isolated from family, together. They had been through it all, and suddenly Jesus is arrested and taken away. And quite frankly, none of that made any sense. The bad guys are winning, and now every shadow looks like a soldier, and every glance looks like the scrutiny of an enemy. And with Jesus in custody, all Peter could think about was saving himself. That's why he said these things. It's why he denied Jesus. He wanted to save himself because he had overestimated his ability to withstand temptation. But here's what you and I need to catch from this. Christians tend to think that we can warm at the devil's fire and not get burned. On your notes, Bob Russell said this, it seems that most Christians underestimate their ability to cope with suffering, but they overestimate their ability to cope with temptation, and they carelessly put themselves in a vulnerable position. Peter wanted to do the right thing, but he failed. Even in coming into the courtyard. He only wanted to stay close to Jesus. He never wanted to cause more harm, but it seems like he did. Look at what Luke says in chapter 22. Just as Peter was speaking, in other words, as the words come out of his mouth, 
the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter, and then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. I mentioned a moment ago that all four Gospels record uh, Jesus saying he would never disown, or Peter would never disown Jesus. All four Gospels also record Peter actually disowning him. You know, Fred Craddock, old preacher, tells about going to an all-night diner in the South decades ago. He was in graduate school for preaching. He'd been up late studying for finals. He decided to take a break and go get something to eat. He said several people were at the counter when he went inside. There was a black man at the end of the counter all by himself. And after serving everyone else at the counter, refilling everyone's coffee, making small talk with people, the cook finally turned to the black man and demanded, what do you want? The older gentleman quietly asked for a hamburger. And the cook Craddock says the cook reached to the back of the grill to the smallest, driest patty that was there and placed it between two slices of bread and then without any kind of toppings at all, he shoved it across the counter to the man and took his money. And the man left his diner, left the diner with his meal and sat down on the curb to eat it. Craddock said as cars sped by, the salt from the road offered the only seasoning to the sandwich Craddock would go on to say, you know, I should have said something, should have done something. It was so unfair, but I didn't say a word. It was so easy to just walk away. So I left him there on the curb, and I headed for the dorm in silence. And I said, and I'm not certain, but in the distance, I could almost swear I heard a rooster crow. Maybe you don't find yourself in an all-night diner in the deep south. Maybe you don't find yourself in the courtyard of the high priest, but you do find yourself with a group of friends on Friday night thinking, I can can handle this. What is the courtyard of temptation for you? For some of us, maybe it's the business trip. For others of us, maybe it's the secret meal with someone other than your spouse. Maybe it's after you turn off the computer or you finish the movie or you hang up the telephone or after you've cheated on the test that you hear the rooster crow? Have you ever said something, done something, or not said something and not done something, and in the distance, you could hear the rooster? Verse 75, then Peter remembered the words Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and he wept bitterly. Ironically, one of the longest, most difficult nights of Peter's life, he finally got it right. And so he cries out to God for forgiveness, and God forgave him. And you know what? I'm going to bet he didn't feel that forgiveness right away, because it wasn't until later that he renewed his relationship with Jesus. But it was that night that God saw his tears and forgave the guilt of his sin. And I want to remind you that the great heroes of the Bible, the men and women in Scripture, were real people with real problems and real sins. And God forgave them all, and he loves you, and wants to forgive you as well. But you, we, have to repent, which, by the way, is the second lesson I hope that you don't fail to get today. Don't underestimate God's desire to forgive you. There's nothing you've ever done, there's nothing you could ever do that can separate you from the love of God. If you want to have that relationship restored, John would write later in the New Testament, 1 John 1, 9, 
that if we will confess our sins, that God is faithful and just. He will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Peter had wandered away from Jesus. But even in the enemy's courtyard, Jesus is continuing to pursue him. And he uses this rooster's crow to bring him back. Can I say that the Lord loves you too much to allow you to continue in sin without confronting you about that? So what do we do? Well, let's look at what Peter did, because whatever it is he did, we need to do as well. And I got to tell you, it's very simple. It's just not going to be easy. But like Peter, when I fail, the first thing I need to do is go back to Jesus. Thursday night, Jesus predicted that Peter would deny knowing him. He told Peter something else. Look at what Jesus said to him. He said, Simon, talking to Peter, listen to me, Satan has demanded the right to test each one of you, all of the apostles, as a farmer does when he separates wheat from the husks. But Simon, I have prayed that your faith will be strong, and when you have come back to me, help the others. So did Jesus know that Peter was going to fail him that night? Of course he did. But look at what he says. I have prayed that your faith, can we go back to that? I have prayed that your faith will be strong. And when you have come back to me, help the others. Look at what Paul wrote. 2 Corinthians 7 says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow leads to death. It's just like any other relationship. When you have wronged someone, the first step is going back to that person and letting them know how sorry that you are. But repentance requires three steps, involves three steps. And the first one, and you'll see this in your notes, is conviction, which is just saying, I was wrong. The second is contrition, which is saying, I'm sorry. The third is to change. That means I will transform my behavior with the help of Jesus. To Peter's credit, he genuinely repented. Peter could have gotten angry at Jesus for being there, but he didn't. He was convicted and admitted, I've sinned. He went out and he wept. He wasn't just sorry that he got caught. He was contrite that he had betrayed the one that he really loved, and he changed. You never read about Peter making this mistake, ever repeating this denial again. I want to make sure, I want to make sure that you see one more detail that speaks volumes about how Jesus responds to our repenting. And I'm not going to say much about these verses that we're about to look at, but I want to show you what happens three days later. Mark records this in chapter 16. It says, when the Sabbath was over, that Mary and Mary and Salome brought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus's body. They're going to the tomb at sunrise on Easter Sunday morning. And verses two and three remind us that they're wondering who's going to roll away the stone. But as they get there, they realize the stone has already been moved. So they enter the tomb and they find this angel who says, listen, don't be alarmed. You're looking for Jesus, the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He's not here. There's the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. I want to make sure you catch this. Go tell his disciples and Peter. It's as if all of heaven watched Peter fall, and it was as if all of heaven wanted to help Peter get back up again. You be sure. Tell them all, but be sure to tell Peter. He's not left out. You be sure to tell him that Jesus wants to see him. Imagine how encouraging that must have been for Peter. Listen, we live in a world that doesn't give many second chances. 
And I love the way Max Lucado says it. He says, it's not every day you find someone who will give you a second chance, much less someone who will give you a second chance every day. And I want to say a word to those who are Christians, but you know at best you've been an inconsistent friend to Jesus. Maybe what's going on right now in the world around us has caused you to rethink who Jesus is in your life. The most important lesson from the story of Peter and thousands of others is that the freedom of forgiveness will exceed the humiliation of repentance. The freedom of forgiveness will exceed the humiliation of repentance. You are not damaged goods. You are not beyond restoration. God can forgive you completely and restore you and use you beyond what you can imagine. So, maybe this is your next step, by the way, that you would stop right where you are now and close your eyes and make a renewed pledge of allegiance to Jesus and receive uh, his forgiveness and be determined to live consistently for him from this moment forward. Because i got to tell you, what we read in Mark 16, this is a brand new day, beginning of a new day for Peter. He wasn't just forgiven. He was given this major role in the kingdom of God. He becomes the leader of the church. He performs the first healing. He preaches the first sermon. He defends the gospel before the Sanhedrin. He decides the case of Ananias and Sapphira, which doesn't go well for them, by the way. Uh, he's the first counselor to Paul. He mediates the first church council. He, Jesus had transformed this, at best, inconsistent disciple into a rock of dependability. Listen, we've all failed before. We will all fail again. The question isn't, will we fail? The question is, what will we do when we fail? So each week we come back to the cross and we hold the bread that reminds us of his body that was broken on the cross and we, the juice that reminds us of Jesus' blood that was shed on the cross and we remind ourselves when we are together that we too have committed our lives to Jesus, that we too fail and that we need the forgiveness not only that we received from Jesus when we gave our lives to him, but we continue to need the forgiveness that he offers to us. And so we want to encourage you today in your homes where you are to take communion. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much for what you did for us on the cross by allowing Jesus. And Jesus, thank you for coming and being willing to give your life for ours. We know the pain of failure we know the humiliation, the embarrassment that goes with admitting our mistakes, our bad choices, sometimes not even mistakes. We, we intentionally did what we knew was wrong, or we intentionally didn't do what we knew was right. And in that, we dishonored you. And so we come back to you now, so grateful for your love, so grateful for your forgiveness, so grateful for your mercy in our lives. And we pray that we will humble ourselves before you and gratefully accept the gift of forgiveness that you offer us. Thank you for this time when we can remember, and we pray this through your son, Jesus. Amen.